Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Nordics podcast. At Evolution, we're committed to helping people and Nordic tech organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. I'm Georgia Benton from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and today I'm your host. So today I'm joined by Alex Everloff, Senior Staff Engineer at Volvo Cars, I have Jens Rantel, who's Senior Software Engineer at Normative, and I have Christian Holmbo, who's Engineering Manager at Volvo Cars, to discuss SRE and full ownership. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. I'd like to know who you are, what you do, and what your biggest passion is as a leader currently. Alex, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, thanks, Georgia. So my name is Alex Everlov, and I work as a senior staff engineer at Volvo Cars, supporting a relatively large organization of 1,700 people. My current engagement is to roll out service levels across uh, organiz- across um, 110 teams, where we set the expectation between the teams, but also all the way towards our customer. What really gives me a kick from my role is that it staff engineers don't have any um, uh, mandate over people or products. So you completely need to rely on uh, softer skills. I call it leadership the hard way. And uh, I've been learning a lot uh, in in my journey as a staff engineer and now senior staff engineer, how to motivate people and how to um, build uh, momentum around this kind of large organizational initiatives. Amazing. And Jens, you want to tell us about yourself? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm 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 Jens Rantel, and uh, I'm an engineer based in Stockholm. And uh, as you said, uh, Georgia, I I currently work for a climate tech company called Normative. Um, but I'm here to represent myself and not my employer. Um, and I've been uh, working in sort of the past 15 years or so doing software engineering, uh, DevOps, SRE related work, and platform engineering. Um, and I guess one of I think my probably probably my biggest passion is that I, I love to teach and I love to create spaces for knowledge sharing. Um, and so that's something I've been doing uh, both at my current job but also at my previous job. Um, um, yeah. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you for being here, Tim. And last but not least, Christian, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm Christian. I'm uh, engineering engineering manager at Volvo Cars, and I've been at Volvo Cars for a year and a half. Uh, I've previously been in different fintechs. and working with both infrastructure teams and uh, as as a developer. Uh, currently, I manage two teams in, with uh, infrastructure and, and observability and uh, professional passions. I think collaboration and people, like um, getting people to collaborate with each other. Often, the technical sides of stuff is is, is easy. It's the people that is the key to get stuff to work. Great. Well, thank you all for introducing yourself. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, a Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. 
If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Now that we've established a context to each of you, let's move on to the topic in focus. You all have a question or a statement on SRE and full ownership. As usual, I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. And each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. So let's start with Jens. Um, Do you want to ask the room your question? Yeah, sure. Uh, So it's a fairly long one. and uh, well, uh, so uh, part of SRE practices is to architect for resiliency. Um, and in the in, in Google's SRE book, uh, there's a wonderful little cha- chapter that I don't think enough people talk about, which uh, is about simplicity. And recently, I've been thinking a lot about simplicity. I've been doing a bit of blog- blogging about it on my blog, and and uh, in in essence, it boils down to like. Uh, I'm seeing that in our industry, we have a tendency to introduce more tools and more processes to improve resiliency. Uh, we introduce queues and we add auto scaling. We sprinkle retries everywhere, or we maybe we even introduce like a framework uh, that adds retries around uh, like everywhere. Um, and sometimes introducing stuff like this adds more errors to things um, and latent failure modes to systems. And now we suddenly have two problems. So like um and i think also in terms of the full ownership aspect of things i also i'm also seeing that um these things can come um from like centrally in larger organizations and um which can be quite hard for 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 individual teams to kind of combat so there's also that aspect and yeah so coming back to my question and it's an open one um if you need to improve stability and resiliency um how do you know when you should remove things from a system instead of adding additional things to it. And I'm I'm kind of curious if you have any rules of, of thumb there. Um, and yeah, this is something I'm thinking about. So I, I'd love to pick your brain on it. Do you have any thoughts? <clears throat> yeah, Alex, Christian, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I think this is, let's, let's step back because if, if we think that architecture is mostly focused on the technical solution, well, um, it's a, it's really starting at the product level where you're defining the problem, right? So if you have product managers who are not good with saying no and um, treating the team uh, like feature factory and cost- constantly asking them to just add to the product instead of removing some features or you know giving them the time to go and clean up and remove the tech depth, then you are bound to have complexity in the product. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is that... Um, Going back to the definition, complexity, what is complex? Is one thing trying to do several things. So we see this in, in, in products where uh, one microservice or one class, one function uh, is expanded uh, to do multiple different things because that's the cheapest way to do that. That's the cheapest way to achieve that goal. Uh, is it the best way? Probably not. Uh, and I mean, it, it depends on, on the case, but but uh, one thing, do, trying to do multiple things, that's one uh, reason for complexity. The opposite is also true. Multiple entities, multiple services trying to do one thing 
And uh, sometimes the word distributed monolith is used. I think that's a, that's a, that's both funny, but also it explains uh, how uh, we think that we are actually reducing the complexity by breaking uh, one thing into multiple things, uh, but we actually are adding to the complexity. Uh, I also wanted to mention the perceived complexity, which is uh, when something looks complicated and, and complex, um, because it is hard to understand. But that can be due to the type of problem that we are solving. It is a complex problem. And this is something going back to what what is your passion, Jens, uh, to help uh, knowledge sharing. So that can be one solution for it, where um, you have better documentation, maybe you have community of uh, practice or COP, uh, or um, other ways to share knowledge to make the product less intimidating and make the complexity more approachable, especially when we are onboarding new people. Mm. Can I add one thing? Um, kind of getting back to what you were saying, Alex, I was thinking, um, I think, I think so. The, the, when I'm talking about complexity, and you 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 talked about product owners and 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 um, so I think um, from an engineering standpoint, I think in the best of worlds, the the complexity of the on the engineering side should be as complex as the product or the the, the, the product that you're building is. Uh, so so the the complexity gap that I'm kind of talking about is is where where um, where where the engineering side of things is more complex than it needs to be um from from like a, a business requirement uh, side of things and then i was also thinking uh, complexity doesn't necessarily have to seep in from from product owners it can also come from like compliance for example or like uh, um yeah so so it's more like stakeholders um that was a reflection i had um I'm thinking a little bit about um, uh, in sediments, like aligning in sediments with with uh, individual uh, contributors, individual engineers. Like, what is it that uh, our engineers get rewarded by? Is it is it presenting a really simple solution, or is it presenting a really cool, complex solution? Like, what is it that we engineers talk about? Is it like LS? Do we do, do we talk about the Unix command LS? Do, do we talk about the one liner after the the command that involves all this? Like, we kind of award complexity because we equal it to some sort of smartness or in intellectual capacity i think so this this makes makes we kind of i think as developers as engineers we are kind of nudged toward uh cool things that are a bit too complex they shouldn't need to be that complex we are not much towards the simple simple solutions or no solution that might be best mm. I, I i love that um and i think um i was also like i mean this could be expanded partially both for like uh, i mean 
it would be wonderful if you could award people for removing things. I I I, I would love that. Uh, and I, I was also thinking um, this is expanding uh, the award reflection uh, um, to also like maybe certain orgs could also are not awarding people for challenging adding things. Uh, and um, like you can be a pain in the ass or something uh, when you are ch constantly challenging like why do we need this thing? And in certain other organizations you could have like people are going to be like, oh, awesome. Thanks for bringing that up. You make a really good point. We don't need this thing. Um, so it's almost like a cultural thing uh, in a way uh, also. Um. So what, what I was talking about is, is what I call the, the the genuine complexity, right? This, there's no malicious in it, uh, ma malice in it. Uh, there is, um, there is reasons for it. But then there's this other groups of complexity, it's a perceived complexity. You're new to the team. You're new to the system. There is no documentation. It's, it looks complex, but when you learn the moving parts, then it's not as complex. And then there is this other group of complexity, which again, I, that's the malice one. When Someone goes to a conference, they learn a new technology, they call it a CV-driven or hype-driven development where you really add to the system where you should be removing or maybe you shouldn't touch it. Um, there are different root causes for this, but the result will be, I think a good rule of thumb for, for knowing how complex a system is, is to see how expensive is it to run it? How often incidents happen? How often are you bleeding money? Uh, how, how, how much are you paying for uh, your infrastructure for your monitoring. And again, we, we can't be scientific here, but you can compare different systems uh, with what you have been building in the past or two different systems in the same organization. That the complexity leads to the cost. I think that's why you asked this question, Jens, right? In the in the context of SRE and such reliability engineering, you would you a, a rule of thumb maybe is that if the system is simple, it's easier to maintain. It's easier to keep up and running. It doesn't fail that often. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that's uh, exactly on, on point. Like we, we want to build things and move things forward, uh, bring, new, bring forth new features, and we need to be mindful about the resources we have. And if we can find simple solutions, we can have a, a higher... Uh, velocity in, in delivering the stuff that the organization is trying to to put forth. Uh, but I, I I don't necessarily think that even if engineers don't bring in new uh, complex solutions just because they want it, like on the whim, I still think we're not... Uh, we're not rewarding the simple solutions enough and we're not we're also looking a little bit too much on 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 the budget of stuff like instead of buying something a service from a, a company company that actually does solve your problem for a living it might be expensive on the paper but if you look at the alternatives to host it yourself, build it yourself even, uh, that cost is often a lot, a lot uh, more expensive. And it's also much harder to get out of. If you, it's easier to get out of a, of, a, 
of a contract or a product that you're buying from someone and switch it to another, then then switch from a in-house supported product that might have a team of people or multiple teams supporting this thing. What are you going to do with them? Like it's it's easier to switch the tools, and we want to be able to switch the tools really quickly. Uh, that's harder if you build it in-house. So that's also an aspect of like trying to steer into simpler things. So you think like you think uh, then like we should. Uh, what I'm hearing is that we should get better at potentially uh, bringing forth the hidden costs of things. Uh, um, is that sort of what I'm hearing then? Yes. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> So one of the best ways to reduce complexity is to actually put the cost of complexity on the very people who have the possibility to remove the complexity. What does that mean? Well, this is uh, this is what I call the full ownership. It has two, three elements. It's uh, knowledge, responsibility, and mandate. So you cannot be responsible for something you don't control, right? You need the mandate over that. You need to be able to make decisions about architecture, about how it is deployed, um, and so on. You cannot use that mandate effectively over something you don't understand. You need the knowledge. You need to understand the code. You need to understand what problem it is solving, what is the product domain, and how is it deployed, um, and so on and so forth. You also gain experience from run, running something. Uh, you learn from mistakes. So think about it. There is only two ways to learn. You either make your own mistakes or you learn from other people's mistakes. So when an incident happens, that's an expensive way to learn. Um, the company has paid the expense, right? Uh, it, it rarely happens that they fire you because there was an incident. Uh, I mean, of course, it depends on the impact also. But generally speaking, incidents are an expensive way to learn, but still they are a way to learn. So why not maximize the learning from that? What happens in, a, in, in most of the broken ownership models that I've seen is that developers are treated like code monkeys. They just write the code and throw it over a metaphorical wall for the infra um, to run. And they, they often call themselves DevOps, but uh, not really because they are supposed to work uh, closely with the developers. So the learning is missing from, um, uh, from that uh, full ownership uh, model if the developers are not held accountable for running their code. And this is actually one of the main hypotheses in my book, Reliability Engineering Mindset, about building full ownership. Un unless there is sort of centrally mandated complexity that people kind of need to do, I guess, if you have a larger organization, if you require everyone to have certain things in place. So so there's also a matter of, 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 uh, of um, yeah, I think that's another aspect to it. Um, Brilliant. And um, with this, I think, obviously, it'd be great to lead into Alex's question as well. Do you want to ask for a room? Yeah, so my question to the group is how to build the mindset around taking reliability seriously. Earlier, we talked about complexity, have a leg in uh, product, a leg in um, engineering and development, and uh, also having a leg in architecture. I think this is kind of um, the scope that relates to uh, reliability in general. Uh, many teams treat reliability like a feature that is um, slapped on the product uh, after the fact. Um, but I believe that the best way to make the system reliable is to think about this from the start. 
but that re- that relies on on building the mindset building the um the background that sees reliability as part of the nfr or non-functional requirement for the product so how do you build that across a large organization i, I guess i can start um oh I'm- there was one tiny detail in the presentation we maybe we should have mentioned. Me and Christian, we used to work together at a previous uh, company, uh, but like, and we did a little bit of work together, um, yeah, introducing service levels. Um, and one of the the key learnings um, uh, that I had there was the importance of starting uh, to to measure reliability, like introduce service levels at the perimeter or at, as close like starting from the customer side of things and and then have that sort of trickle in uh, so i i think it's it's a like it's a matter of creating um it's like a, creating a, a, a tool for communication and i think service levels can really be that like it's sort of a contract between different teams and but if you start at, at the actual customer experience end of things you will then kind of be able to it will trickle into the organization deeper and deeper and deeper uh, uh, where people kind of say, well, the, the team, the perimeter team, they asks us to have this kind of availability or latency. Um, and as such, we are now asking your team, the database team or whatnot, you know, to, to have this kind of availability. Um, so I think, um, I think that's, that's really um, useful. The problem with this is that, it, uh, what I've been seeing so far is that um, platform teams and DevOps teams and, and the kind of the infrastructure teams, they tend to be really, really great at metrics. Uh, and usually these initiatives kind of come from them because they have a big uh, incentive to have available systems. Um, but where, So you need to kind of do a, a, a lot of training and, and uh, create the incentive also. Uh, for um, to think about service levels on, at the perimeter. That's a great point, Jens. Service levels are a great way to communicate uh, responsibility and set expectations between teams, but also all the way towards the customers. So the work that um, is involved to, to understand how reliability is perceived from the customer's perspective, is it availability, is it latency, is it time to first buy it? You know, finding the metrics at the consumer's end and then breaking it down layer after layer through the architecture and define a SLI service level indicator and SLO service level objective per team can be very daunting. And it is especially tricky when the organization is new to the service levels and they may not even have SREs or site reliability engineers. But I believe that this is one of the most effective tools to communicate uh, expectations um, and uh, commitment uh, between the teams and then bind them all the way to the uh, end users level. Yeah, yeah, I, I um, totally agree. I think I think it's, well, usually say, we usually say that we can't change things that we don't measure, right? And I think when we look at a, company like this uh the there are like non non-technical or non-engineering kpis in in all all companies like if you go to finance you'll find a lot of interesting things on on revenues and and that's what 
a lot of the time, like top managers, C-level managers uh, look at. And I think one one thing that we are missing out of is is connecting these metrics. So this is this is basically um, uh, getting getting accountability for for the things that we can change. And we are talking about service levels are like one way of having data-driven uh, decision-making. Uh, and if we can con connect that with what the organization, the organization's goal or the, the, the business of the organization, I think that's uh, uh, a key part because service levels in itself is that's just a model that can be applied on anything and and as i see it when your definition of your your slis and slos and, and stuff like that is that trying to model the user of your service so you can know if 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 your if your user or consumer of your service is having a good time or not before they tell you uh and that model you can apply anywhere, and engineers often get it quickly. For for uh, other parts of the organization, it might be harder to get or harder to to strive for. But I think if we con can connect that, uh, then you actually have some some sort of uh, steering for for working with with uh, both getting better value out of the organization, but also like through reliability or whatever you want, actually. Yeah, that's a very important point you raised, Christian. So with service levels, we are essentially building a model of how a service is used in production. And just like any other model, it needs to evolve as the technical solution is evolving and as our understanding of the uh, usage of the service is evolving. Uh, one of the problems I, I see in the wild is that people who have been reading the Google's SRE books, uh, by the way, they're excellent books and, and Google uh, did a service to the community for uh, publishing them for free. Uh, so many people who, who use those books as a reference, particularly when they are new, they end up with vanity metrics. What does that mean? Well, many examples on that book, uh, on those books are um, are made to be um, simple yeah, and um, uncontroversial, something that everyone can relate to. For example, availability, latency, data consistency. And what happens is that um, the engineers will start implementing exactly those metrics and it might not be the right metric. So what they, they end up with pretty dashboards and uh, vanity metrics, basically. Um, a good rule of thumb to know um, if you are measuring the right thing is to see if your PM cares about it, if your users care about it. Because if it is not something that is tied to the business, then you're measuring the wrong thing. And mind you, these um, metrics are supposed to guide uh, any optimization that is being done in the team. So you want to refactor something, where is your data? Why are you refactoring it? Uh, and and that um, those metrics is something that can answer that question, right? As you're optimizing the system, it needs to it needs to optimize and improve a metric that we are measuring. And here is why you are defining the service levels. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. And you basically said everything I wanted to say, Alex. I just wanted to add to that. Um, um, 
I think there's I think there's also a little bit of training that or I think there's a fair amount of training that can be done if you if you want to treat uh, stability as a feature or or resiliency as a feature um, you also need to I think there's there's training that you can do with PMs um, to um, to explain that for example you know if 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 the PM clicks the button clicks a button in the product in their product and it works they need to understand that that button might not work for 100 for for 99% of all the other users and so you kind of need to measure whether cl- clicking that button works or not um and 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 then you su- suddenly start having a conversation around okay well how many what's the success rate of clicking that button uh and i'm not sure that uh i mean i th- i think there's uh, definitely a knowledge gap there where engineers understand this, but PMs might not always think about that fact that, you know, uh, maybe they upload some very simple demo data set and uh, things will work great. But then the customers are uploading two bajillion uh, rows in the database and uh, trying to do uh, weird things with it. Um, so, yeah. Excellent point, Jens. So with service levels, we are essentially moving away from the wrong assumption that uh, the system should never fail to acknowledging that complex systems fail all the time. So let's dig into what is failure from the consumer's perspective and how much failure is tolerable. The complement of SLO is called error budget. So if you say that, for example, um, I want to have 99% um, availability that means that one percent of the time uh, i'm okay with not being available and that error budget actually allows the team to um, optimize and and to ship new code because the number one enemy of reliability is change right every time you change um, the system um, the likelihood of it breaking increases so the risk that the business is taking and needs to align with the type of business. So some businesses, for example, in media, you have higher risk appetite. You can take more risk. Whereas if you are building a airport control system or hospital information system, you have less um, risk appetite. You don't want to take risk because it's going to be very expensive. And so what SLO and what uh, objective we have for our service levels, uh, it needs to bind to the type of business and type of product we are building. We basically need to change the conversation from system should never fail to what is failure and how much of that is okay. Because we will never get to 100% um, never failure because what's the number one enemy of reliability? Change. Every time you're shipping new feature, every time you're uh, tweaking your infrastructure, there's a higher likelihood that things will break. So in order to be able to evolve the system, we really need that um, Error budget, as it is called, is the opposite of service level objective. So basically, you need to decide uh, how much failure am I okay? Is it one in a million? Okay, then write that down. Uh, because then the engineers know what is the budget that they can work with and how fast they can change the system. How should the architecture of the system uh, satisfy the, the user goals? So this is in the, in the category of NFR or non-functional requirement, right? Uh, we talk about the scalability, about reliability, and also about the failure. Because uh, there is a rule of thumb that for every nine that you add to your SLO, the system is going to be 10 times more reliable. And usually the cost of it will also increase tenfold. 
Yeah. It needs to be balanced. Like, how much money are you making? Of course, it is possible to um, make a media site and have the reliability of um, uh, your airport control tower or uh, hospital information system. But does it really worth it to to spend all that money? And those systems are usually more regulated, so it's not like you cannot. Uh, it's not like you can go and um, deploy code uh, every few hours. And it has to go through several gatekeeping parties, QA and uh, uh, compliance. Um, so it's, it's, there's a cost to that that needs to be uh, aligned with how uh, business makes money from that product. Yeah. Amazing. And we'll move on to the last but not least question. Um, Christian, um, do you want to open your question up to the room and tell us where it comes from? Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, we've touched on a lot of the uh, things that I think this question will <laughs> will will lead to. But uh, yeah, my question is whose responsibility is reliability of a service? So in all companies that I've worked on, reliability has been uh, sort of a assumed quality if you will of the of the product like the the salespeople, the product the product people the engineer everyone kind of assumes that this uh, product is reliable and it, that it will work but often i've seen that like when push comes to shove when you need to prioritize stuff it's not always that reliability work uh is being prioritized so the question is like whose whose responsibility is it to to drive reliability work so if if we see uh reliability as a feature as as jens managed managed like is it the is it the product organization that should push for that feature or is it the engineering organization or upper management or even i don't know is it sales <laughs> who 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 drives this feature then what do you think yeah i i had um i mean i i, I guess most of us in this call we've we've uh, had conversations where we like you know we're engineering and product should try to always aim for to have one backlog because if you happen to have two backlogs it's going to be really messy and it's going to be really hard to prioritize what to focus on. And I think um, uh, from that perspective, I think and you, uh, I think it it probably would create the least friction if the product side of things would own uh, like reliability and 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 ask for it. Um, but I also think, I mean, as I, I was alluding to before, I think uh, there's a knowledge uh, gap there. Um, Sometimes, I would say that if you're adding reliability at the later stages of the product lifecycle and essentially treating it as a feature, you're probably doing it uh, wrong. I would say that reliability is something that we need to think about early on when we are um, architecturing the system and we are thinking about how to build a technical solution. It gets exponentially more expensive to add that later as an afterthought. So reliability is a part of NFR or non-functional requirements. 
And these are the requirements that explain uh, what's the amount of load that the system is supposed to handle, how many users will it have, is it sensitive to, re- to uh, latency, to um, error rate, is it data consistency that is important. I would say that reliability is something that needs to be identified at that stage. Uh, to not make it too expensive um, to implement it later. Because if you are going to treat it like a feature and add it later, it may be very expensive. Maybe you need to rewrite something. Maybe you need to migrate something. Maybe you need to change vendors. Or maybe it will take um, a significantly um, more amount of time to actually implement uh, reliability and make the system more reliable. Uh, I have a story to to help uh, uh, nail that. So uh, I there was a media company uh, that uh, that had poor reliability, and uh, if you look at the app reviews, users were unhappy about the reliability, and and they decided to throw money at the problem and hire SREs or site reliability engineers. That's how I came in uh, the company. And as soon as we started digging, we we heard that the CTO wanted five nines. Now. Five nines uh, in in terms of uptime means that you have 26 seconds of um, downtime allowed per month. That's a very, very tiny error budget. So to put that into perspective, this is the time that you need to uh, identify an incident, uh, call someone in the middle of the night if it happens during the night, and they wake up, they rub their eyes, they question their career choices. And they open their laptop, they dig into the symptom, they're supposed to find the root cause and ship a fix to production. All of that happening in 26 minutes, 26 seconds. That's not going to happen. That's just too short. So five nines or um, in other words, 99.999 availability. This is the realm of high availability systems. These are the systems that are supposed to automatically detect and recover from the errors because in 26 seconds, you cannot even afford to have humans in the loop, right? So we started doing the research to see what is the absolute worst uh, amount of unreliability or downtime that the uh, users can put up with before they close their subscription and move to a competitor. The answer for us was uh, two hours. That gives us 99.7 SLO instead of 99.999. Now, I know that these numbers can be hard to imagine and they can get abstract. Uh, I have created a a service-level calculator, which I will link in the the description. Um, That allows the um, engineers and product managers and business stakeholders to play with the numbers and see what does it it translate to uh, in terms of risk so they can decide a reasonable um, service-level objective. In that particular uh, media company, uh, we decided to uh, put the cost of unreliability on the engineers, uh, meaning that you build it, you own it, you are on call for it, and align the um, interests of the business with the um, energy and uh, knowledge of the developers to make the system more reliable. Uh, implementing on-call turned out to be very challenging, especially in the US where the users didn't, where the developers didn't get uh, paid for on-call. Um, whereas in Sweden and and uh, United Kingdom, you would get uh, paid. I mean, there there is uh, there is some discrepancies in the details. For example, you get paid only if incident happen in in some regions. Whereas um, in in Sweden, most of the companies I have worked for, they pay you regardless if incident happens or not, and um, kind of gives the incentive to the developers to create a high uh, uh, quality product 
that will not bother them. It will not wake them up in the middle of the night. It will not put them on call. Uh, sorry, it, it will not call them uh, when when uh, um, because the system is not failing uh, as often. Uh, I'm seeing that uh, it looks like uh, Christian has his hand raised. Uh, would you are you do you want to uh, respond to Alex or do you have a new topic? Because I kind of have a different topic. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll, I'll, I really like the point that you're making, Alex, uh, about uh, you're doing it wrong if you treat it as a feature. Because I'm I'm totally on 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 that side. It's it's a little bit almost a little bit of a trick question. Uh, I also see it as a requirement that you can't really slap on uh, late in in the game. But I don't see it necessarily if you if you really want good uh, reliability, I don't think that it's enough to put it as a requirement on on engineering or on your system or on on the services that you're running. It's actually a requirement on the organization as a whole. Because if you have if you have a team that isn't accountable, that means that they don't they don't take ownership of what they're doing or if they can't take ownership of what they're uh, responsible for it's really hard to get reliability in place also if you if you lack trust in in the organization if you can't like be transparent without being ridiculed or pointed out or blamed or something it's also really hard to to have like a swift response to to uh, incidents or or unforeseen issues, uh, so I think I think um, I think you could put it as a as a requirement on the organization. Like, how do we organize the company in a way that it can respond to things uh, in an effective way without wasting time on on uh, um, uh, internal conflicts or un uncertainty around who owns what and whose responsibility is uh, the, the issues are. Yeah, what do you say, Jens? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, 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 I'm trying to uh, tie a few uh, loose ends in our conversation together here. Um, I was thinking about um, what you were talking about earlier, at least, and you were talking about sort of what, what are you awarded for in an organization. Um, we've also been talking about uh, kind of closing the knowledge gap around um, uh, around things, one of the, well, around the uh, reliability. And um, uh, I was also thinking, um, thinking about uh, Alex, you mentioned at some point you had you had a, a term that you used for for when engineers start measuring something that no one kind of cares about. Um, vanity metric. Yeah, exactly, a vanity metric. The thing is though, somebody cares about it, and I think I think a common thing is also that engineers have pride in the work that they do, uh, and and so uh, sometimes so in a way somebody cares about it, but maybe it's 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 not the business highest priority, because because as engineers we do care uh, building uh, products that that work well. Um, Exactly. If you can't win an argument with a metric, then that's not a good metric. That's not helping us being a smarter. True. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, so yeah, and I, and then I, I I also wanted to share kind of in 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 on this topic. I wanted to share. I had a conversation the other day uh, about postmortems, and uh, somebody brought up. Um, so if you really want to kind of build an incentive 
to for reliability within an organization as an engineer for example uh, uh, one uh, really smart way uh, of doing that would be to actually add uh, or estimate the cost for a post-mortem um, um, so like how much time did we spend on this how like did, did like how how much like trying to estimate the actual customer impact um, potentially also estimating uh, the cost um uh, of of um, the future cost of not fixing uh, like doing the remediation actions uh, to avoid this uh, incident from happening again um, and um, I, I really like that because usually like when you put a money tag on things um, people actually start to listen a bit more so I thought that was that was an interesting point and then um, sometimes in certain organizations, they might be willing to take the hit for an incident and like it because because maybe they're trying to find the product market fit and maybe the reliability of the service might not be the most important thing or maybe they're fine with having a 80% or 90% uh, uptime or something. Um, but yeah, and in, from that perspective, I think another type of cost, if you will, uh, that, that you could estimate would also be just that the, the sheer amount of person hours that was spent on a specific incident or or spent trying to figure out to solve a bug so and and, and this is something that you could present to product owners or engineering leaders and, and say hey we're spending a significant amount of time here these are the number of hours we're spending just trying to make our systems work and we could equally be spending if we fix these things up we could be spending actually building our products instead and finding that product market fit um, yeah, I found that to be a really interesting uh, conversation and a different way to go about um, uh, estimating the impact of of incidents. Mm. What's your thoughts, Alex? Yeah, I agree. So putting a price tag on the errors on the incident actually makes it easier to have the conversation about how much budget do you need to actually build the system. I've seen some systems that um, get away with eighty percent availability. That's fine, you know. And yeah. I, I think the part that is uh, maybe hard to understand is that when you're building a product, you're, you're just making it work. You're, you're looking for your product market fit, right? And maybe it's a startup. You, you, you really don't want to worry about the scalability issue. Like you first want to see, can you get your first customer uh, and then postpone the reliability of um, reliability, scalability, those kind of questions to the future, which is saying like in the beginning, you don't want to, um, burn lots of money on the product because you think well, what if it doesn't work you know <laughs> you shouldn't pay that uh, ahead so we talked about the tech debt but i think uh, tech um, loan is also a term uh, like you're loaning uh, to your future you basically are spending all this money thinking that it will scale but it will be in reality it will not uh, be used um, i think a different way to think about this is optimism versus pessimism. So both of them contribute to the society. Optimists build the airplane and the pessimists uh, build the parachute, right? And when it comes to development to software, you also have those mentalities. The developers usually are focused to make it work. You know, you're writing that for loop, that function, that object, whatever have you. You're trying to make the solution work to, to satisfy the requirement. Whereas you, uh, you have this other group of people, uh, the DevOps, the um, or infrastructure, the, um, the QA, and they are trying to find ways or think about how can this product fail, 
you know, uh, trying to uh, see it from the failure perspective. So if you're working at a startup or a greenfield project, maybe um, you want to uh, focus your energy on finding the product market fit, especially when you're in the discovery mode. And you want to postpone um, scalability and reliability to the feature. I, earlier, I argued that this is not a good idea. Uh, you have to think about it early on. But, you know, sometimes it just doesn't make sense to spend uh, all the resources on making a system scalable when you are not even sure that you're going to have that first customer. So um, tech debt is something that is well known. I think that tech loan also should be something we can borrow from the uh, financial industry. That's basically... Um, you cut some corners and you get a loan from your future. You know that you have to pay this back at some point. And of course, there's going to be interest. So the amount of time that you're going to spend eventually is going to be higher than if you consistently uh, pay, pay the debt. But that's also one way that we can think about um, um, postponing reliability to the future. I want to tell a story about uh, how I got into site reliability engineering uh, because I was doing this before even knowing that it has a name. So I was part of a company that uh, had financial problems and they decided to go to cost cutting uh, uh, phase. Uh, it's not very common to do mass layoffs um, in, in Sweden where there is unions and then since the government is, is responsible for a lot of the social, a lot of uh, safety nets uh, and they have the law and regulation in their hand, they make it very hard for companies to get rid of people, right? But that company didn't have money and they had to let some people go. And initially, it was just the consultants. They started with that, but then after a while, they fired all the DevOps and the quality assurance as well. And this responsibility was delegated to regular software developers like myself, uh, which was a great learning uh, journey, but also very frustrating because up until that point, I was acting as a monkey coder and just coding and throwing it over a metaphorical wall for the DevOps to run. And all of a sudden, I had access, uh, admin access to a uh, company's uh, AWS account, and um, I was responsible and on call for that. And uh, not only me, but my entire team. And uh, we made some expensive mistakes, but we also went through some training to reduce the risk of those mistakes and design better. I think this is a good example of what uh, Google CEO uh, calls, um, calls out as scarcity breeds clarity. So in many organizations, we, we have a habit of taking one role and then breaking it into multiple titles. What happens in reality is that those titles will block, block each other. So uh, thinking about um, developers um, and uh, DevOps and QA and release manager, like all these roles that are related to each other. Once you once these roles are um, once these titles are assumed by different people, they they block each other. What happens if someone is on vacation? You know, and and people want to have their territory. Uh, a release manager will not be happy if you release without them, them getting uh, in the loop, right? Um, so, and so there is friction and there is waste. But sometimes you can actually use that friction to your advantage. So, for example, if your company, due to compliance reason, needs to slow down the pace of change, uh, reminder that the number one enemy of reliability is change. So if you want to uh, have some sort of risk control and gatekeeping, by all means, go and add those uh, roles. But that should be more of a deliberate choice 
uh, as opposed to being the default state where you uh, have so many people having those titles uh, that are very specialist and very, very limited in the scope. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, generalists that one person uh, can act, uh, can wear different uh, hats and have different uh, titles, so to speak, in, in that word. What do you think, Jens? What do you think, Jens? Uh, yeah, I, I had a, I'm, I'm a little jumpy here, but uh, I just had a micro reflection. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure we need to go down there, but I wanted to point that we've been talking a lot about like product versus engineering owning uh, reliability, but I also think, um, um, I think how you decide to implement SRE within organizations is a really interesting topic, and uh, and um, there are certain organizations that also have. Uh, or companies where they have a separate SRE organization, uh, and um, and kind of coming back to the full ownership model, I I I'm not really a, a believer in in that approach. I think uh, embedding is if you do that, embedding is is probably the way to go there. Uh, but it's it's even even that I'm not not sure that it is the right way um, to uh, have. Uh, SRE as a role, uh, I think it's more of a set of principles and practices that you really want to teach uh, all engineers um, to incorporate. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think I think what we've been talking about now is, is uh, or at least my takeaways from from these discussions is uh, that reliability and total ownership uh it's it's about the organization and and having the organization enable skillful engineers to build reliable systems and 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 align uh in sediments so those so you get awarded for for making things more reliable and not more complicated and service levels we we have talked a lot about service levels. I think that's a good good place to start, but we also need to align like the the processes and and structures in the organization around like accountability and ownership and mandate and, and that kind of thing. I'll add one more thing. Um, uh, I just realized also like I think we've been focusing a lot like the. We've been, when we when we're talking about when we're talking about engineering, it it it's also I mean engineering. It's almost like I want I want to expand talking about reliability uh, more as a product development thing um, because um, uh, engine like I said, reliability can also seep into uh, UX experience uh, on how to kind of. Uh, present errors, how, how to handle if something is down. You can do a uh, graceful degradation of certain features, um, and and so there's also um, there's also an aspect of that where you you really need to make sure uh, to teach uh, sort of that kind of mindset also to UX uh, people at times. So many people know Matt Skelton of uh, Team Topology's book, uh, Reputation. He also has a page um, for DevOps Team Topologies uh, um, and uh, SRE and uh, infrastructure, like how those teams work together with the developers. Uh, um, I hope that we can link it in the description. Um, when it comes to SRE versus the 
typical software engineer, I think there is a lot in SRE that can actually empower a typical engineer. Uh, for example, putting software engineers in charge of operation, which can unblock many new potentials, improving reliability at uh, uh, the code and architecture level and reducing toil using software um, software engineering uh, practices to solve operational problems. Um, shifting discussions from the system should never fail to acknowledging that complex systems fail all the time. So let's dig into what is failure and how much of it is okay. That's very empowering uh, perspective. Uh, and also the clever alerting uh, on SLO, which can reduce the alert fatigue and uh, false alerts. I think there is a lot of wisdom in the Google SRE books that can uh, enable many developers in, in different companies, although they are not at Google level or uh, primarily a software company. Yeah, I completely agree. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, great discussion, guys. Obviously, um, a lot of stuff learned from me um, and hopefully a lot of kind of uh, thoughts that our listeners can take away from this as well. So um, before we do end the podcast, I'd like to say thank you so much to all of our guests for sharing the thoughts. Um, um, we've had Alex Everloff, who's Senior Staff Engineer at Volvo Cars. We have Jens Rantel, who's the Senior Software Engineer at Normative and Christian Holmbo, who's engineering manager at Volvo Cars 2. If you are hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message too. I'm Georgia Benton and you can find me on LinkedIn or um, email me at georgia.benton at evolution-nordics.com. Um, or even visit us online at evolutionjobs.com forward slash UK forward slash Nordics. Thank you again so much to all of our guests and thank you for listening. Um, we hope you can join us next time.